This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 129 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is the great French actress Isabelle Huppert. The 63-year-old, who sometimes is referred to as the French Meryl Streep, has been appearing in films for 45 years, during which she has established herself as one of the most daring and respected actresses not only in her native France, but in the entire world. Indeed, she was recently described by Variety as, quote, our greatest living actress, close quote. She has worked with everyone from Otto Preminger to Claude Chabral to Michael Cimino to Michael Haneke to David O. Russell. She has appeared in more films that were part of the main lineup at the Cannes Film Festival than any other performer in history, and twice has won Cannes Best Actress Award for Violette in 1978 and for The Piano Teacher in 2001. She has received 16 nominations for Frances César Award, more than any other actress in its history, and won once in 1996 for her work in La Ceremonie. And this award season in recognition of her controversial, disturbing, and masterful portrayal of a rape survivor in Paul Verhoeven's most unusual French-language drama, Elle, she has won Best Actress Gotham, New York Film Critics Circle, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and Golden Globe Awards, and been nominated for Best Actress Critics' Choice, European Film, and César Awards, and she is, at long last, an Oscar nominee, also in the category of Best Actress. For all of these reasons, it was a great pleasure and privilege to sit down with Huppert at the San Ysidro Ranch near Santa Barbara to discuss her entire life and career. Among other things, we talked about how her mother was largely responsible for her entry into the acting field, how her roles in 1977's The Lacemaker and 1978's Violette, which screened at the New York Film Festival in back-to-back years, helped to cement her reputation early on as an actress with great range and ability, why she particularly hit it off with Violette's director, Claude Chabral, with whom she collaborated on six films prior to 2010 when he passed away, and why she came to have a similar relationship with Michael Haneke, with whom she collaborated on 2001's The Piano Teacher, 2011's Amour, and the forthcoming 2017 film Happy End, why she proudly stands behind Heaven's Gate, the controversial Michael Cimino film in which she starred in 1980, and why she tends to be drawn to characters who have dark sides, whether in The Piano Teacher, La Ceremonie, or, most recently, in Elle, which some have described as a rape comedy, but which she took and takes most seriously. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Paris, but I was raised in the west suburbs of Paris in a little town called Ville d'Avray. Mm-hmm. I name it because there was, there was a famous film called Les Dimanches de Ville d'Avray, The Sunday of Ville d'Avray, directed by French director Serge Bourguignon. So this is where it took place, and it's a small town between Paris and Versailles. And I'm the youngest uh, child of five, and my mother was just... Just, mm-hmm. if I can call it, just raising us. And yes. my father was running a safety locks company yes, yeah, sure. that was doing keys and safety boxes. Now, do you think being one of five children had anything to do with your eventual pursuit of, of acting? It's sort of something that gets you a, a bit more attention when it's probably hard when there's four other people clamoring for, for your parents' attention? That could be, but also because I was the youngest, yes. I never missed any kind of attention, <laughs> I have to say, neither right. from my brother and sisters and parents. So it could be the other way around yes. that I got so much attention <laughs> right. from the very beginning that I took it as a kind of encouragement. Right. Now, were theater or movies or television a part of your life when you were growing up? And if they were, were any particular productions or people favorites or influences for you? 
Well, actually, I saw very few movies when I was young. We had the television in my house very, very late, and very rarely I was going to the movies myself. So I didn't get much influence. I went to the theater a little bit like any, but maybe not any, but most of French little girls, you know, we would go, class, go see classic. So I had this kind of a cultural education. But as for really a, a strong movie education, I didn't have any. I did read, though, about one movie that you saw that you said had a profound influence on you, and this was the movie that won the Palme d'Or in 1958. What, and you, it was very influential for... So maybe you can share what it was and why it was influential. It was a Russian film directed by a great Russian director, Kalatozov, which got Palme d'Or in 1959, I think, which was also known for having influenced Claude Lelouch very much for those ah. camera movements. You know, when Claude Lelouch eventually got to do this round camera movements, you know, with mm-hmm. the camera winding around. Yes. So that came from from the vision of the Kalatos of films, uh, mainly, I think, from what he said. So the title was Kakletayut. I can say it in, in like Russian. The cranes are flying. Like the cranes are flying. And it was, it's a, it's a marvelous black and white film with great uh, Russian movie star Tatiana Samolovna. And it was extremely moving. And I have a, a very, very precise remembering of the last scene when it's, it takes place during the war. And uh, it's a story about this young uh, couple and she, he goes to the war and he's a soldier and is going to die. And at the end of the film, she comes to the station in Moscow to pick him up and, and she still hopes that, that he is going to be alive. And she is wearing a beautiful white suit and she has a bunch of flowers. And as she walks on the platform, she understands that he does not show up and she understands that she won't see him again. Mm-hmm. And then she the tears come to her eyes and then she comes across this old man who looks at her and says... You have to leave. You have to leave. And I remember this as I tell you the story. Mm. I remember it as I was seeing it two hours ago. And then she, uh, as she's crying, she starts smiling. And I had, I thought probably. I mean, I was very young when I saw it. I saw it on television mm-hmm. a few years after it went to Cannes. But probably when I saw that, I, I thought intuitively or unconsciously that could be what it means being an actress: smile and crying at the same time. That's fascinating. Mm, uh, mm, I'm going to have to go watch that movie. <laughs> yes, and you'll see that scene. And you've got those beautiful... And then at some point, there are bombing, and so the, the house is destroyed. I have such... Because I haven't seen it since. Really? Yeah, I don't think so. But everything is just Come there right in my back. mind. It's very strange. Amazing. Really printed. I have read that in terms of your own involvement with acting, it really came about because your mother encouraged you to to get into it when you were around 14, it sounds like. Why do you think she encouraged you to do that? And do you think you would have found your way into it anyway? Or was it really because of her? It wasn't because of her, but certainly, I mean, she encouraged me and she was very happy. I don't know, maybe secretly. I I do think that children sometimes either go against their own (laughs) parents' own desires or they fulfill secret parents' desire. Also, my family was kind of, kind of connected with the movie business because my grandfather was owning a film studio long, long time oh, ago. Really? Yes. Or let's say was part of the yeah, yeah. ownership of that studio, to be more specific. And it was a French studio called France Studio Photo Sonore in, back in the, I don't know, 30s or 40s, mm-hmm. where we shot a lot of French movies. He was part of that as a technician okay. because uh, not on the artistic side but at the end he was involved in any and he was a great great movie buff wow. but anyway yes I, I only got encouragements both from my mother and, and father and my mother really encouraged me to apply for this school in Versailles it was like a, a conservatory mm-hmm. of dramatic art in Versailles where I went when I was 14 years old and I got the first prize at the end of the year and I remember there was this very famous casting director at the end of the concourse at the end of the year. Her name was Margot Capullier, and she mm-hmm. was very well known in France. Mm-hmm. She was also connected to the surrealistic people. I mean, she was a very interesting woman. Mm-hmm. And she casted me a few years later in my first American films with Otto Preminger, Rosebud. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when I took that final concourse, she was there and she came to me and she said, you have to go on, you have to go on. Uh, I'm sure you, have, you, you so are an actress. she was the one after you got this award, which I think was for... Un caprice. Oui, c'est ça. Yes, <laughs> at <laughs> the conservatory. So you got this. This is great feedback for a new actress. She also now says you're good. Absolutely. And so two years into this conservatory, 
you decided I'm going to go and try my luck in the real world? Yes. Then I, uh, after graduation, I, I studied Russian for two years at the university, but very quickly I started being a, an actress, but very, very gradually I was more like an extra, doing really, mm -hmm. really small roles and extra mainly in, in television. And then and then I did my first film. Before I did a film with Otto Breminger, Rosebud, casted by Margot Capelier, I did another film, which was my real first feature film with a famous Belgian singer, Jacques Brel, La Barre de la Fourche. Okay. The Barre de la Fourche. And the one thing, though, that I... I think is worth noting is that at some point didn't you basically just go and knock on the door of a of a studio right you were not going to wait for somebody to come discover you you wanted to go after this well i was a, a, an acting student and at the time i mean it was nothing really outstanding or original but you had this uh, television building in france in paris where young aspiring actors would go and 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 knock on doors and say here i am uh, do you have work for and me this and things was like while this. you were at the conservatory or yeah after? this is while i was at the conservatory did that result in those first early small parts were you getting those while you were still a student Yes, absolutely. Okay. This was the time I started doing this. And then, if I have it correct, the first TV movie was in 1971, the first film in 1972. And throughout the early 70s, it was, as you say, a lot of supporting smaller parts. But were you also doing theater at that time? Yes, of course, because I was... Um, uh, then, uh, meantime, I joined the Conservatory of Paris, which is the main drama school mm -hmm. in Paris. And around that time, mm -hmm. I'm not so accurate mm -hmm. about the dates, but then, yes, I probably did my first play in Paris, yes. And as a result of, of your involvement with the theater, you ended up spending a lot of time seeing a lot of the United States, right? Yes, because I did a tour. There was this company at the time called, uh, I, don't, I forgot the name, Les Tréteaux de Paris, I think. Yes, that was mm -hmm. it, Les Tréteaux de Paris, that was organizing tours uh, with classic in colleges and universities. So I did one it, with the Miser, classic by Moliere. Mm -hmm. And so it was a French company which would travel into various states. So the first state I landed in America, and that was my first encounter with with United States, was in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> where we performed in Richmond College. And then we went to Georgia, Alabama, Iowa, I mean, everywhere. Like, like 25 20, states? Yeah, 25 states. Amazing. So you've seen more of, the, of America than most Americans. Mm, probably because <laughs> then in the, in the following year, yes, I've been to many, many places Incredible. in America. So, but then, as you say, the I guess the most high-profile early role would have been in Rosebud for Otto Preminger. And this was also your first Hollywood film, right? So did that come as a result of being in America no, by no means, because it was all shot in France. It was. Okay. Yes, it was not really a Hollywood picture. Right. It was produced by Eric Preminger, who was Otto's, Otto Preminger's son, mm -hmm. and written by, oh, I forgot her name right, right now, right, right. and together with a French, very French writer at the time called Paul Boncarrer, mm -hmm. who by, an ex I mean, I, I, I do a big jump in the time, yeah. who by an extraordinary random happens to be Mia Hans's love. Ah grandfather oh my God. happens to be the father of the woman I play in Things to Come. I had no idea. It was it was as I was talking to Mia yeah. that Mia, hands in love with whom I did Things to yes. Come, who told me, do you know that Paul Boncarré was my grandfather? I was, <laughs> what? I mean, I couldn't believe it because he was a, he was a wonderful man. I liked him mm -hmm. very much. But he was writing, he was far from the philosophy yeah. <laughs> field. He was more writing like thrillers and this kind of book. But he was the father of the woman I play in the film. Amazing. amazing. And that was completely strange. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. So so after this, you know, Rosebud comes out in 1975, but the one that it seems like really put you on the, on the map internationally and for which you won the BAFTA for Most Promising Newcomer and all of that was The Lacemaker in 1977, two years later, in which, just to remind people, you, you play this hairdresser who is... I think, devastated by the end of her first romance. And this was for Claude Goretta. And I just wonder, how did it come about? And, and how soon did you realize that this could be a special one? 
Well, the book got the Prix Goncourt, you know, which is the highest literary prize, like your, your Pulitzer Prize, you know, in France. Yeah. And it was so by Pascal Lenné. So the book was absolutely wonderful. And when you read the book, and again, my mother, I remember, <laughs> had read the book and she told me, you should read that book because it's so, and it was, the, the, the description of the character was so close to me. He was talking about this very young girl with round cheeks, with green eyes and <laughs> a bit plump, with uh, freckles. Yeah. So uh, I read the book and, and very quickly uh, a producer bought the rights to the book and, and thought about me. That was a kind of evidence between yeah. me and that character, I have to yeah. say and asked Kulgarita to do the film, and it ended up to be a, a great, great success and really my first really big break, although I had made many other films before yeah. as supporting roles, but that was my first big break. And what was really special about it, I guess, was that while most young actresses were being asked to sort of just be pretty and whatever, this was a very multi-dimensional part, right? Absolutely. That was probably my luck, my chance, because it really played and operates on something that usually as you are very, when you are very young you don't really use this kind of uh, capacities or but it was very very emotional and because also it was about somebody who who couldn't seduce that young man and who and and uh, so it played on on something really really not cerebral I wouldn't say cerebral but really deep yeah. and emotional and just a year later you began what would be I guess the most significant collaboration maybe of your career with Claude Chabral in Violette, which just to remind people again, you play a teen in the 30s who murders her parents. It's a totally different role just a year later. And I think that I believe the the case was I remember, you know, seeing that both of these movies played at the New York Film Festival. Absolutely. And people sit, had a very hard time believing that the same person could be someone so innocent and then someone so, so not. guilty. Yes. Absolutely. And that was a yeah. great opportunity for you because it, it just in such a short span yeah, of, time, of time, absolutely. you know, showed your range. But what was it that led to this, this first meeting with Cloud? And why do you think you two hit it off as much as you did? Yes, I remember some producer again, but The Last Maker had been a great success. And also, yeah. meantime, I had been in a play, very successful, directed by my sister, Caroline, uh-huh. with a, a play by Musset, again, mm-hmm. the, the same who wrote A Caprice. Mm-hmm. That was You Mustn't Trifle With Love, yeah. a very famous, yeah. on very famous play by Musset. And so that was really my momentum during that year. So some producer thought about me for that role. A, a famous lawyer of the time had written a book about that case, and they thought about Chabrol, and that was my first encounter with Chabrol. And I, at, that, at the moment, I said, it's the lace maker who escapes from the hospital and kills her mother and father. <laughs> Same character, but you take it, uh, you know, right. you turn around her and it's, <laughs> it's the opposite of her. And it, I got Best Actress in Cannes for that, for that film. And I think that was the premise of, premises of my relationship with Chabrol, which was so important for yes. me, because very quickly we, we knew that we were going to have a long journey mm-hmm. together because I think we teamed very well on the fact that we, we neither he and us certainly nor I uh, were interested by idealizing the character yeah, yeah. or making them romantic yeah. or but rather show them how they are and show them as a product of difficult situations. It was a more a political view yeah. on characters which consists in saying those are, it's not the character which is hard, it's the situation around the character which is hard, and that right. leads to a story of women. And so it allows you to show, it goes beyond sympathy or non-sympathetic character, it goes immediately to have empathy for the mm-hmm. character as being the sociological or political or historical product, product of a certain time. Mm-hmm. And that really started with Violette. And Violette was a very interesting case because she was... Very quickly, even at the time the case happened, after she killed her, her father died, not her mother. She missed her mother, <laughs> and and finally she she almost she even reunited with the mother. It was a very very strange case, and she was praised by the surrealist uh, uh, poet by Paul Éluard or Breton, who said she undid the fatal fatal knots of family ties. Mm-hmm. She undid so as a symbol of that. She became a positive symbol, and then she went to jail. She married the son of the director of the jail, and she was rehabilitated by De Gaulle in 1960, early 60s, which it's an amazing oh case. God. Yeah. Well, how many in the end did you do? With, I know Which Claude wrong, died in 2010, right? I think we all together we did six or seven. Yeah. We were going, we were about to do our, let's say, seventh or eighth together. 
The thing that absolutely amazed me was I, I saw another interview of yours where you said, quote, I don't think he ever said one word in terms of direction of the characters in all these years, in six films, close quote. How did you two still manage to bring out the best in each other without that kind of communication? Well, it, it's a bit the same kind of relationship that I had with Paul Verhoeven. In that respect, there was, there was, there was a lot in common between mm-hmm. Verhoeven, I thought, and, and Claude Chabrol. Having the same capacity to just show a situation as it is with different sides, uh, drama, with humor. I mean, they're, they're quite similar in that respect. And and like with Paul Verhoeven, uh, he, who never said a word to me, uh, that happened to me, uh, to, with Chabrol mm-hmm. too. Because I think that, uh, you know, their, their vision and their direction is so strong, in fact, that they literally emerge and plunge you into that frame, into that... and. And they let you take the material and shape it on, on the way you do. And at that point, whether you are going to be a little bit more that or a little less, it doesn't make any difference, you know, because the, the frame itself is strong enough to contain yeah. some little variations which, um, which are more likely to the actor or the actress to do it, whether he wants to do it or not, <laughs> rather than a specific indication, no, you have to be like this or no, you have to be like that. And that was, of course, the great, joy for me of my collaboration with Chabol because we did seven very, very different films, historical, like or literary, mm-hmm. like Madame Bovary, more historical, like Story of Women, more like a, almost a thriller, like with the ceremony, mm-hmm. comedy with, I can't remember the the, friend, the English name of film. I don't, I don't think this one was released in, mm-hmm. in the States. So going from one genre to the other, but yet always you know, completely letting me, they gave me total, he gave me total freedom. Was it tough to then go and work with other directors who were not able to do that? I have to say that most of directors that I've been working with, you know, let's take Michael Haneke, for Mm -hmm. example, he says very few things, Mm -hmm. very, very few. Some of them would do more, but if they do, I mean, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't sound as it would be too intrusive right. or like a burden or like something you want to get rid of. I mean, I think red directors know exactly how to do it. So even if they give you indications, you don't receive it like an obligation. Right. That would be the worst. So of these different great directors who you worked with, the ones that really stand out in your memory, the Haneke, Verhoeven, Chabral, how many of them embraced rehearsal? And how do you feel about rehearsal? Do you like it or not? In France, I have to say we rehearse very little. Mm-hmm. Hanukkah, if you tell Hanukkah, let's read the script before we are going to start shooting, he would look at you like you were <laughs> speaking Chinese, you know. He does not even understand. And that would be the same for Chabrol. Yeah. The, some of them would read a little bit, but for, for, for small reasons, but... I read more in America, mm-hmm. I have to say, than it's not, it's not really a French habit. It's a different habit. Do uh, you feel that it's just kind of actually counterproductive for cinema? Because in a way, it seems like you like the spontaneity. And so maybe that takes away some of that. I like to be spontaneous, yeah. let's yes, say. Yes. But I have to say also, I can be just the way I want to be in any situations yeah. and any occasions it doesn't really matter for right. me when i work with hartley for example an amateur that because that was the organization of the work we rehearsed for six weeks oh, and wow. then we shot or let's say maybe less five weeks mm-hmm. and then we shot the film so i mean everything is fine for me well yeah. if it's if the director wants to do 50 takes let's do 50 takes he wants to do one take let's do one take i mean i'm very easy yeah. really <laughs> i'm very flexible right. and it's not really my problem you know how about improvisation do you like that or do you prefer to have exact words to stick to that it depends on scenes and improvisation is something very difficult to handle i think the greatest improvisation i did was with maurice piala with whom with whom i did lulu for example some of the scene would be very much written and the text would be very much uh, respected and some other scenes i don't know if you remember the film you know the but Mm -hmm. some you know were completely improvised for example that Big scene at the end of the film, at the countryside, mm-hmm. when we're all having a meal around that big table. That was improvisation. But the improvisation is really something very difficult to handle, as much as for the director as for the actors, yeah. I have to say. But again, I think it's, you know, you, each film has a, a life of its own, an organic life, and each film produces its own way of doing. Right. So if the film commands it, it's fine. Yeah. Whether it is improvisation, not improvisation, it's not something that comes from the exterior. It's something that it's an ordeal from the film itself. Right. 
definitely the biggest movie you had been a part of up to that point in terms of the the budget and the scale and everything would have been Heaven's Gate in 19 came out in 1980 it was I know just to remind people again you play Ella this French immigrant who becomes a madam in Wyoming in in the 1890s and this is Michael Cimino's film right after The Deer Hunter when he had as much opportunity to do anything he wanted as possible and he chose to to go to bat for you because he had seen I believe Violet and rather than even though I think it was being imposed on him they wanted him to go with Jane Fonda or Diane Keaton or somebody he wanted you and so how did you first hear about this and were you able to wrap your head around what he was thinking about doing with this movie I heard about that, about Michael, uh, by my agent, my French agent of the time, who called me up one morning and said, listen, there was this great American director. You don't know him for, you don't know him yet. You will know him because not only he wants you for his next film, but he's going to have all the Oscar in two months. Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was, that must have been like in November, December, but everybody knew that the movie was going to be a great, great event as well as a great success. And I said, ah, okay. And then started a very, very long <laughs> ride until I finally did the film because the people from the producers didn't want me to do the film and my, Michael was really, really stubborn. And that's, and he kept saying that, yes, that the way he met me was the, what we said. He, by total accident, one day he walked into this movie theater at the Paris Theater where... Oh, in, yeah, New York. In yeah. New York, next to the plaza, mm-hmm. where most of the time French films are being mm-hmm. uh, played. And he walked into the theater knowing nothing about what I was going to see. He saw three minutes of the film and he said, I found my actress. Amazing. That's what he said. Yeah, that was amazing. Now, at that time in your life, how confident were you in your English to go and then do an, uh, your first English language or, you know, large part? Did I you- was confident enough. Uh, yeah. in, uh, he, he never asked me to work with a coach or, mm-hmm. I mean, he really wanted a French, uh, a foreign actress. And also the movie really plays on, on, on foreign accents, yes. as you can. I mean, even the American accent would take Russian accents or Polish accents because it was the whole subject of the film. So, I mean, it was out of the question Not to concern, make yeah. me have me improve my accent right. or sound like an American actress. Or But you did have to do a lot of other things to prepare for that, right? There was... There were some lessons and different things, right? It was like going in summer camps. It was great. <laughs> I, w- I was shooting Lulu at the time with Maurice Piala. Yes. So Michael had someone sent over to France to make sure that I was going to finish the film in time. I had a stop date in the film. So, and, and, and Maurice Piala had a grudge on me for the rest of his life <laughs> that I left his film too early, but you know, I, I could leave his film by contract because then he wanted, as always, to reshoot yeah, some other yeah. scenes. So he had to wait until Heaven's Gate was over. And Which at that time, forever. we had no idea that Heaven's Gate was to be over a long <laughs> right, time after right. it was supposed to be over. And so he sent an actor and that actor was Paul D'Amato, who was in Deer Hunter. So Paul D'Amato found himself on Lulu's set. <laughs> Not knowing what I was going to do. So after a few hours he was there, he looked at me and he said, they put me to work. And finally, <laughs> Maurice Piala was absolutely fine with him being him. He yeah. was very, uh, he was talking to him all day, you know, because he thought he was very nice, right. which was true. Paul D'Amato was really nice. Yeah. And so I flew back with Paul D'Amato to New York because that was Michael's ID. I want her, I need her to be back. And then I arrived to Montana after, I don't know how many hours of flight. <laughs> Uh, and I remember when I w- walked into the room, there was two gifts waiting for me, a big hat, cowboy hat, and a big pair of uh, cowboy boots. Yeah. <laughs> that and you would have yes. to put those to work because you needed to learn how to ride. How to ride, how to ride a carriage, how to shoot the gun. <laughs> and so I shot. we shot three days, among which really big scenes, like uh, I remember when I rush back into Sweetwater Village mm-hmm. which was the name mm-hmm. of the village in tears and, and Chris Christopherson is shaving and uh, that was I think my first scene wow. and and then we stopped for two months almost and and during those two months we did everything every morning we would go uh, to ride horses uh, learn how to uh, to, uh, to waltz, waltz yeah. because there's this big waltz scene with Chris Christopherson and do everything all day. We were very busy. And you had originally, when you signed up for that, you thought you were signing up for three months, right? As everybody, yes. I, I thought I was there until end of June, and I was going to do a French film that I had to to give up with French director. So how long was, did it go? 
I was there until beginning of September, I think, or end of August. That's a lot longer. And and then and then the shoot resumed with all the Harvard scenes a few months later that were shot in England, I think, or maybe in in a, but in a different location. When you left that set for the final time, how did you expect the film would be received? Did you feel it had gone well? Uh, because you know, of course, at at this point. We all know that it was received n- not positively, and yet over the years, its reputation has grown. So what was your s- sort of guess as you left the set, and why do you think that its reputation has been what it's been? I have no doubt, and I think anybody on that set, you talk to Jeff Bridges, talk to everybody who was there, Chris Christopherson, whether Chris Walken, we had no doubt that we were really doing something special, mm-hmm. and that Michael, for me, Michael was... A genius. Mm-hmm. He was one of the best American uh, filmmakers until he passed away last June. And so we were completely pushed by him. You know, he had such a great charisma as as a man and as an artist. And we, we, we were part of that. Mm-hmm. And he was he has this vision of that film. But of course, none of us could predict what happened a few months later, which is the next November when the movie was released in New York and everybody walked, I mean, a lot of people walked away from the theater. Was it and we just knew that, that it was too long or that they, it wasn't marketed properly? People didn't, what, what do you think the issue was? It was just, he had had a big, big budget and almost maybe it, it made him a target, right? I think that it was a combination of, of several things. The fact that the movie was really unusual in his uh, narrative line. Michael kept saying, it, take it as it could be a dream mm-hmm. with all what it implies in terms of strange storyline. It was not certainly not classical. It was long, and but Michael was completely responsible for that length of that film. It was also political, I think. I mean, political in the very large sense of the word. It was very uh, critical to something very American, which is really... And it went against that. And I think it was maybe difficult for Mm -hmm. people to... To, to accept the combination of the form, which was unusual, and the, the depth of the yeah, film, which yeah. also was a bit difficult to accept. A New York Times profile of you that came out around the time of that movie in 1980 recognized something about you and the characters that you choose to play that seems to me to still be true 37 years later, and I'm going to read it to you. Quote, The women she plays aren't so much exploited for their sexuality as that they use it for their own ends, close quote. If that doesn't also describe L, which we'll be coming to, then I don't know what does. It's the same idea of I'm not going to be used for my sexuality. I'm going to find a way to use, use it, it for myself. Yeah. Is yeah. there any rhyme or reason why that's been something that throughout your career you've gravitated towards? Certainly not consciously, yeah. but even more so because more intuitively and unconsciously, it's something that comes from <laughs> the very deep of of yourself but it's not i never took it as a as a statement and as a theoretical statement now when i read this i can understand how people can throw bridges also between from what i did at the time until what i'm doing now i don't know it's it's i would have to reflect a lot about my (laughs) own work and who i am and how i relate as a person to my work and to my expression through my characters it's a little bit it's difficult for me to speak about it but it's certainly true that's for sure yeah we should note that shortly after that i guess in the early 80s you made two films for jean-luc godard every man for himself in 1980 and passion in 1982 how did you two first cross paths and what did you make of him he's obviously seems to be one of the more enigmatic people in the history of cinema. So what was your experience? Oh, it was a, a wonderful experience. I, I, I wish any actor in the world to, at some point, come across Jean-Luc Godard and work with him. I mean, again, for me, he's a genius and mm-hmm. uh, he really uh, changed view of, you know, he was one of those, I, I keep saying when he won't be there anymore, we, we would all be like orphans, you know. Mm-hmm. He really invented a, a new language. Until now, I still think that he's mm-hmm. still doing it. He's a... Is, is is in a in a different dimension and he called me up one day and he said would you like to work with me and uh, that was before Heaven's Gate but that was just after I got Best Actress in Cannes for Violet yes. and I said yes why not <laughs> and he said uh, and I remember because he said can we meet I said yes when I said I can meet you next week and he said no no in 10 minutes <laughs> and 10 minutes later he was he was ringing at my apartment oh, I thought it was God. so funny <laughs> and and then we did uh, two films together and he went 
to visit me on on Heaven's Gate set. Really? Yeah. They uh, must have gotten a kick out of that. The other people on the well, board. actually, he never went to set. Uh, to Michael' disappointment, yes. I have to say, because he went. Jean Luc Godard wanted to talk to me. Uh, well, the the movie was running out of time. I mean, right, right. Uh, running over. Be, yeah. yeah, behind, and uh, and Jean Luc was waiting for me to come back to to do that film. So he visited me in Montana. And I went to pick him up at the airport. I was driving a car at the time to be a little uh, freer on my spared moments in the film. Mm -hmm. And we went to have lunch in this little restaurant by a river in Montana. That was kind of <laughs> weird to drive Jean-Luc Godard. you and Jean-Luc yeah, Godard like in a diner in Montana. Yeah, in, the, in Montana. <laughs> and I just asked him, just to tell me a few words about the character, but I will, because as you know, there is no really script right. with Jean-Luc Godard, you know. There were all, all other kinds of indications, scenes, bits of dialogues, images, music, sounds. It's like a mosaic that you can draw yourself imagination uh, for the film. And then I told him, can you just tell him a few words about the character? And he looked at me and he said, it will be the face of the suffering. That was all. <laughs> and then we went back to the hotel. And then in the meantime, Michael had heard about Jean-Luc being around. So he called me up. He said, Isabelle, I, I hear that Jean-Luc Godard is here. Please uh, uh, have him come on set. Mm -hmm. I would be so delighted he comes. And at the time we were shooting like two hours on rough road, far inland, in uh, far from the hotel. Mm -hmm. So I said, Jean-Luc, you are in, welcome. But And we were doing night shoot. But he was too tired and yeah. he never showed up. He went back to Los Angeles. <laughs> but he Angeles. did come all the way to Montana. That's yeah, from, yeah, absolutely. So in both films, was it the case that there was not really a script or was there different on the second? No, it was, I think there was even less script on Passion. Passion was more difficult for him to achieve. He was less sure of, of himself. He kept saying that every man for himself was his, his second first film. Yes. Like a new start. Yes. And on Passion, which was the one right after, mm -hmm. it was a little less <laughs> joyful. Yeah. And he had, I don't know, the, the, the whole shoot was more difficult. And But I think it was the same, no script. I mean, right. always the same kind of a, unusual right. way to do it. Now, right after Passion, you were in Entre Nous, which was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Foreign Film yeah, Oscar. Dying Curious. Which L should have been. And I, it was Dying Curious, though. And the most succinct summary, I guess, a, a Holocaust survivor not happy in her marriage. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about this one is that because of the social history and values in France and America, it was actually received pretty differently in both places, right? That I don't remember. Why? Well, Why wouldn't that? it have been because the husband was more sympathized with in France than in America, I think, right? That she's not interested in sticking around for, for you know, she would basically the idea of, of the liberated woman oui. was regarded differently in, in the two In places. two countries. That yeah. I didn't really realize. I, I wasn't aware of that. You mean to say that uh, in America she was, people understood her more, willing to that, that, get that, away? That, right. I mean, because what I've read from other, I think there, you had had a conversation with Roger Ebert about that mm -hmm, one. Mm -hmm. And somehow it came up that in France, people felt that the husband wasn't such a neglectful, bad guy. He mm -hmm. was just, you know, this was oui, what marriage is yeah, like. Absolutely. But here, a lot of people said, this guy's a jerk, you know, good for her for, ah, you know. Okay, so. that was already the first good sign of women and power. Right, exactly, you were ahead okay. of the game. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, that's but, good uh, to understand. Okay. One other question, though, about that one is, and I guess this was this was for the viewer open to interpretation, but I wonder what your interpretation was. There are hints that, your character, Lena, and the other woman may have been more than friends. When you were playing it, did you think there was any, were you, in your own mind, was there any thought given to the fact that they might have been romantically interested in each other? With, well, it's something that was voluntarily left a bit as a possibility, yeah. let's say. Not, uh, nothing was confirmed right. about that because I think it's no secret that it's completely autobiographical. Mm -hmm. So voluntarily... Maybe because Diane didn't know much more about her own mother mm -hmm. and this friendship she has this, with this other woman. So actually, I was never really sure because this is not really something we discussed. You know, when we come across autobiographical mm -hmm. material with someone, it's very weird because you don't know what the person puts from reality. <laughs> right. You don't know what is imagination. Right. And I think as an actress, it's good to remain a little bit, to, to go with your own intuition about that and not 
to, to, to say things from the script, to take things from the script as it is. And then, you know, voluntarily, it's been left a bit as a question mark. So whether. your intuition on that one, yes or no, these two were involved, there, there was romantic interest. I'm not sure, actually. Uh, my, in, my own intuition would be more there was the willing of something to happen, <laughs> but not necessarily that, that it, it happened. Did, yeah. yeah. Some people have said that the the most impressive of all of your collaborations with Chabrol, which there were many great ones, but was La Ceremony, which was in 95. This is, you're playing kind of a psychopathic maid. Do you agree? Are you able to step back and sort of objectively say, I think this was, whether it's that one or another one, that was the was the strongest of your of your collaborations with him. It was certainly one of the strongest films I did. I think all collaborations I did with him were strong. Yes. But I mean that movie really struck people. So it was the most political. Mm-hmm. It was based on the Ruth Randall's book, mm-hmm. and it's certainly a film that really struck people because it it was strong. I mean those two women oh, yeah. who ended up also. It was based on a famous case. A bit like Violette yeah. that took place in the 30s, which was Les Sœurs Papin, yeah. about two maids who killed their patron. Yeah. And again, they also became a sort of symbol of rebellion right. against against the bourgeoisie. But story of women was very strong already oh, uh, yeah. and very political oh, yeah. about this woman who committed abortions during the war. Sure. And as Chabol said, she was doing nothing else than something that was going to be reimbursed by social security right. years later. <laughs> That's The one, though, that I think... Maybe prior to L, you received the most widespread acclaim for. And tell me if you if I'm wrong, but I think has to be the piano teacher, right? right. Mm -hmm. And this is to remind people, or if they don't know yet, you're playing Erica, this piano teacher who lives with her mother and has all sorts of hang-ups sexually. Came out in 2001. This was the first time I think of three maybe that you've worked with Haneke and. As I understand it, he spent 15 years trying to make this, but he wasn't going to do it without you. He really wanted you. And you have said that along with the Chabrol collaborations, this was your favorite film to do. And maybe now L as well. I don't know. But why was that? What was it about the doing of The Piano Teacher? Well, I'm not sure I said it was my favorite film, but it's certainly a film that changed people's view on me. I mean, certain roles are so strong and they, are, they stay so much in people's mind also because in terms of quantity and mm-hmm. quality and quantity also because the movie was a great success everywhere. Yeah. And so really people remember that film and it really struck people. The, the role was very daring, very disturbing. In all these movies I've been doing with Chabrol and even more so with The Piano Teacher and even more so with Elle, mm-hmm. on the surface there is something that set those parts into a certain category and so you have you have I have to support uh, you know the definition of perverse manipulative <laughs> I think it's I don't I do think it's none of this but I think that I do think that beneath that people relate to the film to something much more deep much more emotional mm-hmm. also much more touching and they don't even know how to name it so that's why they rather name it perverse manipulative I see whatever but I'm sure that otherwise those movies wouldn't wouldn't strike people as as they have struck them and wouldn't be would haven't been so successful as they have been. But also know. part of that may I'm sure is because of you. They don't you know, when we think about people that other portrayals of people that have these different I don't know if issues is even the right word, you know, the way they're normally portrayed is because we we think of them as different or where you don't normally have somebody like you who is somebody that, that we would relate yeah, to, normal. Absolutely. And so that's what makes, I think it's so bold that you do this because a lot of other people I think are are scared away from playing these kinds of parts. Yes, it just, they appear as completely normal and yet with, with as I think everybody, you know, with certain obsessions, fantasy, uh, fantasies, something that usually you don't confess. Of course, the piano teacher is a special story, <laughs> but at the end, I think it's also a love story. Yeah. And it's also a very, very strong statement about love about how this woman thinks that love should be i mean she places love on a very very high level as much as she places music mm-hmm. on a very high level she makes a difference between what it means to love and what it means to seduce she also understands what it means to control your feeling and to have somebody to control somebody else's feeling and that's what the movie speaks yeah. about but in a way 
with a kind of exaggeration or like it was on the, with a magnifying uh, light, mm -hmm. you know, it also speaks about what love is, what desire is, mm -hmm. what that some that comes across everybody's mm -hmm. psyche. And you know, everybody likes to talk about the the most unusual, eccentric, controversial moments in the movie. But I actually want to ask you about one of them that I think is as amazing as any, where you're just sitting, listening to him play at the piano, and your face doesn't really change expression and yet we can tell that so many different emotions are are going on in in your mind and so just i wonder in a moment like that are you thinking about the actual story of the film or are you trying to draw upon your own experiences or maybe and I, people said this about garbo maybe we're totally all just projecting maybe you're not even thinking about anything and it's us that are trying to project something so what if you can go back to that moment what was going on are you talking about that moment where the the young boy first auditions for her where he's yeah, two moments Schubert yeah, and yeah, he's trying pretty, to seduce, yeah. Yeah. yes and i i listening to well, actually, I have to tell you, we saw that scene so quickly. I was thinking I, I was supposed to catch a flight the next hour. <laughs> I was going to meet my children for vacation, so for the weekend. So that's a joke. But it's not a joke because it's it's what it happened. Yeah. We, we shot it really quickly. I think a lot of things go in my face. I've, I've been watching that scene many, many times. I think that she fights against something. She's extremely moved by what she hears. And also, the way he plays, she understands that something goes wrong because he plays maybe only German or Austrian people can really understand that like Michael Haneke can you know I mean mm -hmm. we were laughing because Bach you know Bach is really you know like God right. and uh, so at that moment they have a certain idea how almost music should be almost religious or highly spiritual yeah. and so the way he plays a bit like this mm -hmm. she understands that it indicates her his soul you know mm -hmm. what is exactly mm -hmm. but on the other and she's seduced by him mm -hmm. immediately because she and, and so she has to fight against contradictory feelings. And yeah. I had to catch my plan. <laughs> so re you really are thinking. So in your mind, you're you're able to kind of juggle all of that. Yes. Well, I'm an actress. And also I remember that and not all the time it happens, but my, Michael Haneke let the music go on. Mm -hmm. So I was able to listen to music. And mm -hmm. if you film someone listening to a music, I mean, music is a very strong vehicle mm -hmm. for emotion. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to that music and I was deeply moved yeah. by listening to it. And I'm an actress, too. So, yes. <laughs> you know, so. Now, when you play a dark character like Erica or like in L. When, when you play Michelle, and you've played many of these kinds of characters, do you leave at the end of the day and go home in a dark mood? Or are you able to just immediately transition right back into your life? In a second. I don't even know what in it means second. to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to be playful with that, but I don't even understand what it means to keep a character. No, it's really... That's lucky because uh, you... Well, I'm, 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 I have enough place in myself right. to... Even if I keep the character, it's not like a burden. It's right. not like a, it, it would over-occupy the space. We can be several in right. myself. It, it doesn't bother me. Right. And which of the roles that you've played has actually been closest to you? I know that you've even played a, a film actress named Isabel, but I don't know. Maybe that's actually not as close to you as some of the others that you've played. It's a difficult question. All the characters I played were close to me, all of them, and all of them are, are not close to me. I keep thinking they are extremely close to me and on the other hand I have nothing to see with the characters I don't even know what it means to be identified with a character mm -hmm. I have nothing to do with this woman from L who runs a video game company I don't even know myself how to make <laughs> to make work my computer so I, I mean I'm completely far from the character yes. I'm not a philosophy teacher I never killed my father or my <laughs> mother so I have nothing to do with my characters but yet I'm completely my characters emotionally right. or in a different space than the story itself. Of course, it's right. me completely. And especially with the people I've been working with, like Haneke, Verhoeven, mm -hmm. Schabel, with these very significant collaborations, because I felt that it's almost, they, let, they gave me so much freedom. Mm -hmm. So I was able, I was able not to be a character. Mm -hmm. I was able to be completely myself. Mm -hmm. That was priceless. Amazing. So I want to talk now about this amazing 2016 that you had two movies, of course, I think you did L and then you did Things to Come. That's right. Before I ask you about them, let me ask you, do you see anything in common between the two characters? 
I see, I do. Uh, first of all, both films have a cat. Both <laughs> films have, have uh, crazy mothers, but that's true. Right. And, and, and in both films, those women are established women, achieved women, but they're also daughters. Mm-hmm. And that's very important in the story, uh, mm-hmm. whether it seems to come or, or L. You know, they're high, uh, sometimes mother, sometimes mm-hmm. daughter. Still, and the mother is very important because it's really, I think that where they are vulnerable is when they feel daughter, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. They might be a f- philosophy teacher, woman of power, this woman who has this relationship with her rapist. When it comes to be still a daughter, they are very vulnerable yeah. and they are still, and that, which I think is really interesting because it really says a lot about what it means to be what it means to be a grown-up yeah. actually doesn't yeah. mean anything <laughs> because <laughs> You're you can be a, uh, yeah, yeah you can be a grown-up and still be a child yes with things to come professor who philosophy professor whose life unravels when her husband of 25 years leaves her for another woman you were directed by Mia Hansen Love who had played your daughter in Olivia Asayas's 2000 film Sentimental Destinies I guess just generally it was an interesting experience to be directed by somebody who you'd acted with before. Yes, yeah. because she was so young when she was my daughter. Yeah. So I kept saying she was my daughter. Now she's like she's my mother right. almost because, right. you know, you've always. A That's like feel. Chinatown. Daughter, mother, daughter, or whatever it was, sister, daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you always feel a little bit the child of your director. Right. He has the power. He knows where right. he takes you. And she certainly knows where mm-hmm. she takes her actors. She's so incredibly talented she's very young and Mia for me she's like almost you know she has the knowledge like mm-hmm. a child would have the knowledge mm-hmm. you know where it, got fr- where it comes from but <laughs> right. she had that incredible amazing knowledge of what it is to be a filmmaker yeah. what it is to direct a film and you've worked with with a number of of very talented female filmmakers including Claire Denis we, mm-hmm. we didn't talk I, that was white material material yeah. and is there any difference when you're directed by a woman than when you're directed by a man? That's a difficult question that I still haven't found the right answer, the good answer, let's say, the satisfying answer to that. There must be as many differences as there are between a man and a woman Mm -hmm. to to start with. But having said that, it's very difficult for me to establish exactly, to reckon some major and significant differences between a woman Mm -hmm. director and a man director. It's very difficult. I mean, I can't say... I have more complicity with a woman because, no, I can't say that. Yeah. I had the most incredible complicity with Paul Verhoeven yes. and Elle. Yeah. So it's very difficult. Well, you anticipate exactly where we're going now, which is Elle and Paul Verhoeven. This project actually really, Elle really started with you, right? You came across the book? Yeah, it did, because I read the book yes. by Philip John. I loved it. I met Philip by accident. Actually, yeah, we ran into one another. Where uh, we we live not far, we not far from one another. And I said, "Oh, I love your book." And uh, and then we had lunch together. And then I said, "I think it would be." You know, it it was gradual. I said, "I think it could be a great film." And then he took me to Benside, the producer, and then Said, and then we started thinking about a director, yeah. and then Said had this genius idea to, to ask Paul Verhoeven. I think he was in touch with Paul at that time for and other Paul projects. was somebody who you'd been aware of for like 40 plus years, right? Well, like everybody, like everybody is everybody, a yeah. really well-known director, but I remember clearly having seen one of his first Dutch films as I was still a student in Paris, and mm. that was Turkish Delight, which yeah. I loved. Yes. I just loved that film. A bit like when uh, the cranes are flying, Yes, yeah. yeah, I remember very, very clearly all the scenes of that And that film. was early on. And then what was it that I read that at one point, maybe you were no longer available to do it or something, but he tried to do it in America? No, 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 no. I was perfectly available. He just betrayed me. <laughs> uh, but we, we joke about it. Eli, you know, Paul, is, is, that's the way he's, he's provocative. You know that. Yeah, so yeah. he likes to tell that story. Right. I went to America. I wanted to do the movie right. with American actresses. <laughs> couldn't get it made and went back to France. I mean, he said that. So, that's yes, it's crazy. true. Wow. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, but that's the, life. The, and, the and root the, of it, though, is probably whether he actually did give it, offer it to anyone else or whatever. The, the heart of the matter is, though, that Americans probably wouldn't have made this movie, right? You can't rewrite the story. I had read the book. I think it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And that, by the way, the, the, the script was written by an American screenwriter, David mm-hmm. Burke, because that was at the time Paul was willing to do the film in, in America. Mm-hmm. Then he had the script being written by an American. But how could he even do that? You're, you brought the material. It's your material. How could he have ever not? Anyway, I don't we know. don't have to. I don't know. I don't want to, you know. <laughs> it worked uh, out. It, it, it didn't work out. That's fate. Right. And, it, and the, the film had, had to... 
get back to me. Yeah. And it's also something I can understand. Maybe he wasn't so sure that I could do it. Uh, no, I mean, it's perfectly understandable. And, and, I mean, there was really nothing negative between us. You know, This I, is I, material, though, rape that... Americans probably were, were a little politically correct more and more so these days. I feel like it would have been been tough here. And it's it's been I know it's provoked a lot of discussion and debate here. But when you were talking with Paul on the set, when you were once you got going, you actually weren't talking all that much with him again. It's like Chabral, right? You just there, there was no discussion about the character. No, I mean we knew the story, we knew the character, so there was no, uh, it wasn't. Uh, it was not about. Oh, listen, Paul, do you think we should go that far? <laughs> oh, it wasn't about. Oh, Isabel, yes, maybe you. No, I mean right. we are grown-up people. Yes. We knew what we were doing. Right. We had complete trust in one another because that, for me as an actress, it really relied on on confidence. I mean that's that's all what it is about. Yeah. There is no other debate. Yeah. Whether when it comes to do a film for an actor or an actress, it's all about confidence and about who you are, uh, who you do it with. Yes. And the relationship and the complicity was so amazing with Paul. He was so, and I never had the least little doubt that it was going to go against me. Yeah. I mean, of course, I was doing the film. Yeah. I wasn't otherwise, you know. He wouldn't be there, but yeah. he needed that confidence from right. myself. That he needed that. And he got it from the beginning. He needed to. And, and when he got that confidence, there was total freedom and easiness between the two of us. And it was just great. But we had no... Well, we knew that the, it was a kind of burning material, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But we also knew, otherwise we haven't done it, we would haven't done it, that beyond the burning material, there was a lot more to it. Of course. You know, it goes beyond that. And uh, there was so much, so many layers. It's disturbing, yes. but it's also... There was a lot of questioning yeah. and it's very deep. And, you know, one day this friend of mine, she saw the film and she come back and she said, said, how did you find the film? She said, I thought it was so touching. I said, touching? And, <laughs> and she said, yeah, I mean it, which I always thought it was actually. Yeah, because I think this woman is more like to be taken like a survivor. Mm-hmm. And if you view her like a survivor, then you understand that all what she does is beyond pain. All what she does is beyond kind of suffering that's the and i think the irony or let's say the humor in the film operates like this it's more like almost a stoicist posture mm-hmm. for that woman to be always you know joking and trying to make jokes about what happens to her rather than just the pleasure of being funny you know the the rape scenes are there's i believe three in the film four four <laughs> one of them is a Imagine because the three there's the the three that oh yeah you're right okay. there's three so I know that you guys worked on how to technically make those look real and so nobody got hurt and all of that but in terms of the emotional approach to those three it's not like you just play them the exact same way right because each of them represents a different step in this woman's feelings about this so I just wonder if you can share how each of these were different. Well, they are, they are different because the two first, and one of which is, as you say, imagine, is with the man as his uh, till masks. So the the two other scenes, of course, have a different signification. Yeah, certainly on the last scene, something happened at the end because that was the most telling, the one that, that takes place in the cellar mm-hmm. downstairs, which ends up in the most emotional way. Mm-hmm. And But again, it's things happened. I think I do think that whether it is for these kind of scenes or other types of scenes the movie has an uh, organic life of its own and at some point you you don't even think about mm-hmm. i mean at least before mm-hmm. but things happen yeah. and so the story is stronger than yourself and you are you do things w- without even predicting it or but would it, it be correct to say so the first one obviously she doesn't know what's coming mm, yeah. second time She's a little more ready for it. And, and at this time, as you say, this, this way of maybe being stoic is to, I'm going to actually enjoy that. I'm going to get some, I'm going to not let you, the rapist, make this horrible for me. I'm going to, I'm going to get some pleasure out of this. And then the third one, again. Well, un- that's more, the, no, because as you said, it's only three scenes. So it's only the, the third one. Only the third where she's I think enjoying. So. Okay. Yeah. Well. Not enjoy. That's the wrong word. It's the wrong word. Yeah. I mean, I think one has to see the film to understand exactly right. what we're talking about because it's it's a lot more complex than this. And I maybe think. it's more that the way I've seen it described is that no, sort because of- actually there are four because the fourth one is the, the the last one at the end of the film. Right. So you have fourth, and what 
Yeah, so what what you said about the second one is in fact the third one. Well, yeah, okay. It's like, hard to keep track. <laughs> yeah, a, so many so of many it. Rape it's so many rapes. <laughs> anyway, I see what you mean. Now, the the sexually violent ending of the piano teacher and the sexual violence throughout L are not entirely dissimilar, right? Because in the piano teacher, he did what she had sort of asked him to do. It was horrible, but and then here she kind of implicitly went along with some of it, right? Yes, because in a very, very different way, it's not really something to be compared, but there's, there's always this idea of a, someone who wants, who wants to understand the mechanism of, I mean, of how it works, let's say, and who wants to, to, to take control. That's what it is about. Yeah. To, and, and I think in that respect, the film deals in the same way, but the same subject about someone who wants to, to take control, to have control, but not for the mere pleasure of having control, also to understand the mystery also yeah. of, of sexuality, mm-hmm. of desire, and to understand something that about herself too. So it also so it's more it's and I think that it's almost like an experiment. Yeah. And that's also something that unifies both films, I think, yeah. the piano teacher and this film. And it's maybe what what it what it could um, disturb people mm-hmm. because both films are emotional for me, but the emotion is placed in a very specific space in the film. And in both films, you have someone who voluntarily has a, a distance to what happens mm-hmm. to her because it's more like an experiment about something they won't understand right. about themselves. Right, right. And that's maybe what you know. Um, oh, that's uh, very interesting. And Paul said that after the cameras stopped rolling on the final scene that you filmed on L, you basically collapsed onto the floor and we're kind of writhing around. What was that? Was that serious? What was going on there? What is... Wh- I don't know. It was t- just an amazing moment. I wish someone would have filmed it so it was more understandable. But <laughs> usually when you do uh, the last scene of the film, it's a great explosion of relief, of joy. Everybody hugs. Everybody's happy. Everybody... And so that it, that, that's what it was, but even more so. Yeah. I mean, with such a... I felt like, you know, after... A boxing yeah, game, you, you know, you just want to yeah. lie down and say, <laughs> oh, oh my God, and I, I did it. And also, I think when you do a, a last scene of a film like this, you know, I, I, I was in every scene, every frame for 12 weeks, every moment of the day. Yeah. And we had very, very long days with yeah, yeah. overtime, really long days. And I think that's what happens at this moment when you wrap, when mm-hmm. you when it's finished, in one second, you rewind the whole thing and you said, I could I do it? How did you get through it? Yeah. Well, these are the last two, very briefly. As you know, the films provoked a lot of, as we were saying earlier, kind of discussion and debate and controversy. It's not the worst thing because people go and see the movie then. But I just wonder, for for somebody who is inclined to feel offended or whatever about about L, why are they wrong? Why why is it, you know, you guys aren't the ones that use the word. I think maybe they hear in advance, oh, rape comedy is how it's been described. I know that's not how you describe it. But why why shouldn't somebody be offended by the idea of this? First of all, I have to say, since the movie was out, since it started in Cannes, in France and in America, I encountered less controversy Mm -hmm. or negative reactions. I never found myself in the situation I had to legitimize what we did and uh, say. And if so, if in theory you you, uh, had to, to face these kind of things, I think that I would say... Uh, something that I am sure about. Otherwise, again, I would haven't read what I read about the film right. in that country or the movie would, wouldn't drive so much good attention to it. I would say, first of all, you can you can take it as a tale and it's more like the exploration of a fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's not a real story. It's nothing to legitimize. We're not saying, yes, it's a good thing. No, I mean, and also, I think there was a great integrity to the film. You You feel that, I said, it's more like to be taken like an experiment, there is a sense of revenge at the film, no matter how it happens, no matter what leads that revenge, I mean, leads to that moment, but there is revenge. Mm-hmm. I don't want to unveil the end of the film for those who haven't seen right, the film, right, but right. obviously, if, if what happens at the end of the film is not revenge, so what is revenge? Right. And so <laughs> there is a sense of punishment, and for all these reasons, there is a great integrity to the film. That's what I would say. And lastly, I have been on pretty much the same circuit as as covering you guys this this season since Telluride and and it's been great to see 
the Gotham Awards, the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, the LA Film Critics Association, the Golden Globes, all of these people have recognized you as as Best Actress. You were nominated by many others. The, and, and now, finally, after many years of having to refer to you as the Best Actress who hasn't received a Oscar nomination, we don't have to do that anymore. Two weeks ago, that changed. What do you make of it all? Do you care about this kind of stuff? And is it kind of nice now to be embraced in this way? Of course it's nice. Of course I care about it. Of course I take it for what it is, yeah. which is a kind of crown achievement yeah. of, of my journey as an actress. Of course. I mean, how could it be otherwise? I, I acknowledge the the also the fact that it's very rare for a French-speaking mm-hmm. actress to be mm-hmm. in that race. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have a kind of gratitude also for the people who, who likes the film to have, to bring this kind of attention to the film. Also, I take it for myself, but I take it for for Paul Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very happy for, mm-hmm. for Paul. And uh, the whole thing has been just extraordinary since the movie started to be seen here. You've been getting a lot of frequent flyer miles, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I'm more in the air than on right. the ground at this moment. Well, congratulations, and thank you so much for this. It's such a privilege to get to go through all these great movies with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> 